1: Please, God.
0: This is God. The dead will walk here. I'm just going to bash your brains. Your suffering will be legendary even in hell. Get me back. It's
1: alive, it's alive, it's alive. They all flow down here.
0: They're coming to get you, Barbara. Boy... You're
1: you all with a capital crime. Evidence says you did it. George Stark has somehow come to life. Hello, George. I've come close to believe a ghost story is You're talking about a man who never was. He wants to take over your life. Can't you see that?
0: Based upon a book by Stephen King comes George A. Romero's masterful vision of a nightmare come true. i ready just waiting on you. Alrighty, folks. Welcome once again to Cinema Degeneration. We are doing something special this week. We are doing our George A. Romero Appreciation Month. And it possibly might be the last episode. Might be able to cram one more in by the end of the month. We'll see what we can do. But this week, we are doing the 1993, written and directed by George A. Romero, Stephen King's The Dark Half. Now, this is, of course, based off the Stephen King novel, the same name, and at least in my opinion, is the most faithful adaptation of a Stephen King novel to to screen that I've ever seen. Maybe there's one out there that I haven't seen, but I'm pretty sure I've seen them all. But joining me this week for this special uh, episode is my good friend Gary Hill. And Gary, how are we doing this evening?
1: Oh, me and my, my pile of goo I call my twin are doing just fine, see, you know. <laughs> uh, now, now, have you ever read the Dark Half? Like, like two decades ago. It's been so long, so I can't really say you know what the faithful adaptation would be in this in this sense. But you you say it is, so it must be true. I mean, I mean, he's one of the most faithful adaptations. I, I remember it pretty pretty goddamn close. Put it that way.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, I remember this movie having a troubled history between you know uh, Romero having trouble with the studios being one of the, the only a couple of times he ever worked with a big studio and then i remember you know the the studio almost like went under i think it was Orion or maybe it was another studio that had went almost went under and almost went bankrupt so it laid in limbo no pun intended for 2 years from 91 to 93 and i remember like seeing it in Fangoria magazine back in the day and just waiting for it and just chomping at the bit because I am a filmmaker, you know, fledgling filmmaker, and I am a writer at heart, and I love Stephen King's stuff, you know. But this is one of the stories that, I, when I remember reading it, that made me want to be a writer. Because, you know, let's face it, Stephen King writes about what he knows, creepy stuff, and also being a writer. You know, so I love the the kind of semi-autobiographical nature of it, you know. It was the last uh, book that he wrote uh, before he uh, kicked a lot of his habits and became clean, you know, became sober, and it shows. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of mode of like, you know, there's kind of a, I guess you could call it a Jekyll and Hyde thing going on here.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, except Jekyll, Jekyll, um, Mr. Hyde being a pile of goo that turned into a full grown boy eventually, you know, once it's uh... a. <laughs>
0: right, right. <laughs> Now, what did you think of that beginning when you first saw it? I, I know what I thought as a little kid, you know, well, I wasn't a little kid. I was like 17, I think probably 16 when this came out, you know, I'm dating myself, but you know, when when they open up little Thad Beaumont's head and you know, you get the, 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 the look at the tumor as they call it, the doctors call it a tumor, but it's a like a partially absorbed twin with a blinking eye and a, couple of teeth one of which i remember i had to write this down like one of which still had a cavity i just remember that freaking me out when i was a kid
1: what well, kind of plays into what you see later on when his, his teeth start falling out you know but um <laughs> but yeah that thing you know it, it seemed hokey as a kid like how how could this even be a thing but if you do like medical research you, you know that that can be a thing and it's it's a little it's a little out there. I mean, the eyeball's moving around, and doctor's like, "Well, there's there's nothing to see here but this tumor," and this fucking eyeball just keeps awa- waking, opening his eye, and you know, it's, it's saying, "Hey, it's it's not a tumor at all. It's all I say about that one, you know."
0: <laughs> not a tumor,
1: not a tumor, not at all. Yeah, like I, I thought there was a good
0: correlation there with the the eye that kept blinking and looking around, and later on when we get george stark starts falling apart his eyes look the same once they start going they kind of look like a couple of deep fried eggs (laughs) you know uh but yeah yeah i mean it starts off pretty much i mean you get the gist of your story within a couple of minutes you know that bone wants a little kid and that's wants to be a writer and as you know he starts having headaches starts hearing these birds and his parents or his mother gets him a typewriter. And as soon as he gets the typewriter, he starts going at it. And I did make a note here that the title of his short story that he was writing was Here There Be Tigers, which was the title of the very first short story that Stephen King ever wrote. So that's a little Stephen King, uh, little cameo, a little nod, because this is one of the few movies that like that George Romero had done. That was a Stephen King adaptation that Stephen King wasn't in. You know, Stephen King didn't have his hand in it, you know, or didn't uh, play The Lonesome Death of Jody Beryl or anything like that. But that's another episode for another time, which we've already recorded that one. So we're good to go. <laughs> and I had to make a note. Like, I uh, looked on the IMDB and the Wikipedia and kind of did my due research. They used 4,500 finches instead of sparrows. Yeah. Forty five hundred finches were used to make this movie. And I couldn't help but think of like the creep show segment where they had all the cockroaches. It's like what's with Romero like wanting to have all these fucking animals or insects and stuff? It just seems to me like that's a not a cost effective way to do things.
1: Yeah, you able to collect all those things by at the end of the shooting like, well, they're all flying out now and um, it's like the cockroaches if you watch the Just Deserts documentary. They'll say that that those things that they purchased or rented, those cockroaches, were just every in everything by the time the end of the shoot was over. So I'd imagine they lost a lot of finches on this set.
0: Oh yeah, I'm sure tons of them ended up uh flying away. Now this movie does have a pretty stellar cast uh we have. Well now our main character, Thad Beaumont and his alter ego George Stark are both played by Timothy Hutton. And to be honest, I've never been a fan of Timothy Hutton. And this is the one movie that I kind of think is an exception to that rule. Oh, uh,
1: there's this, and then I think there's Taps that I enjoy. but um, See, not, not a fan, yeah. If you want to watch a good toxic male movie that I hate hate with the, a fire of a thousand suns, watch uh, Beautiful Girls from 1993. I th- right on the same time this came out, you know, where he... uh. He's infatuated with a thirteen-year-old uh, Natalie Portman, which is kind of gross in that movie. And that movie's kind of gross. He's being a little slimy about the male uh, psyche. It's like, yeah, maybe I should better myself after watching beautiful girls. <laughs>
0: <laughs> He's like, I'm gonna play a killer with a straight razor and a forty-five. You know, I'm just gonna do that instead. Do it. Much more... <laughs> but yeah, I'm this not a fan of his, but I am a big fan of his. In this film, he he really plays those two characters, Thad and George, really well. And uh, he, you the know, double, to the
1: point- d- double by John Amplis, by the way, which is a Romero staple. And I'm really curious which parts were John Amplis and which parts were t- Timothy Hutton in some of those Alexis machine uh, scenes, George Stark scenes.
0: Yeah, because they're pretty flawless. Mm-hmm. You know, this this the uh, where they're both together, where they do the kind of like the split screen, because, you know, a lot of times back in the day, this is before, you know, green screen was as advanced as it was and CGI <clears throat> was as advanced as it is. You know, it the camera moves around quite a bit. It's just not like a static shot, you know, of the two of them, whereas obviously just shot, you know, they split screened it. The camera moves around quite a bit and it's really kind of just really interesting to watch the camera movement with the two of them together so yeah i would like to pick john amplis's uh brain at some point at uh if we ever get to back to the days of going to the conventions once again that's probably one of the first questions i'll ask him you know not well, not anything about day of the dead not about filming martin i would be asking about dark half because yeah, this is my favorite absolute favorite george romero movie i have massive love for his living dead trilogy but yeah dark half yeah expect a lot of uh romero uh ego stroking in this episode folks because i i'm a the, I'm the big big fan of this and it does play takes place it's it's the perfect marriage in the horror community as far as i'm concerned because when you get george romero adapting stephen king work it's just perfect uh in every way and you know i I'm always a, a b- big person to say you know that that there is no such thing as a perfect film, but this is about as good as it gets. And But, you know, getting back to the cast, we got uh, Amy Madigan as Thad's wife, got Michael Rooker as Alan Pangborn, and the final film role of Royal Dano from Killer Clowns, uh, yeah. you know, Ghoulies 2, House yeah. 2.
1: Yeah, look, look back, his career is vast, and I should really explore some of his, like, early Western work, stuff like that, but... Uh yeah, Royal's been was a treasure for a very long time and still is, in my opinion. So,
0: oh yeah, like him and uh, oh who's the other actor? That's pretty much his his uh, double, um, Rory Calhoun.
1: Yeah, you know, the, the, the,
0: the 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 it's it's a sacrilege that the two of them didn't star in a buddy cop film or a buddy you know western film because they were pretty much interchange well. interchangeable.
1: Well between between Royal Daniel, Clue Gulager and and Rory Calhoun, I'd imagine they acted in something together at some point. I, I have to look that up, but he could go go on the way back machine to look that one up. Yeah,
0: I'm sure they because I mean God, he was in almost two hundred films when I was looking at his uh you know, his IMDB and I I knew he was pretty prolific, but I didn't realize he did like hundred and ninety five things. And this, you know, his character is Digger Holt. You know, it's really brief. It's, you know, he's not really in, but what, like two scenes, but it's really good. And, you know, he had just came off of doing uh, Twin Peaks and Spaced Invaders. Once again, Killer Clowns from Outer Space again. But, you know, I just love him. And, you know, this movie could have benefited from a little bit more of him. But. When we get past the the unabsorbed twin with the, the doctors, you know, just kind of dismissing it and the nurse that's freaking out. And when the one nurse is like, remember where you are. It's, <laughs> it's just uh, it, it's, it's, it's not meant to be a funny scene. But to me, it is kind of funny now as an it, adult. Because like you said, it is. it's a little it's hokey. Ve-
1: it's very funny because the doctor is basically saying there's nothing to see here. But there's definitely something to see here. Something to get grossed out about this this mass inside of Thad's head that's alive, just moving around. Like, yep, yep, nothing nope, 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 nope to see here now. Just uh, calm, calm down, little lady.
0: <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, it's not every day that you open up a you know a ten year old kid's head and inspecting a tumor in his uh, blinking eyeball looking back at you. You know, <laughs> that's just not not normal. There is something to see here, and it's looking back at you for fuck's sake. But <laughs> we get, get away from, from that moment of it. Uh, we get into the story 23 years later. I thought that was an, almost a missed opportunity. It should have been 27 years later. Then we had a link to Pennywise. But there's, you know, only so many winks and nods that you can get to <laughs> Stephen King's work and even one of his stories. But Thad is now a, a writer and a professor. And uh, he gets a... Uh, kind of you know blindsided uh, after one of his uh his uh class one of his classes and fucking fred clausen is what i wrote down robert joy the actor who plays fred clausen is really great at playing being a character actor but he's really good at playing this fucking fred clausen guy he's just such a scumbag he's there you know to to blackmail thad and it kind of plays into something that really happened with uh, Stephen King where he was writing as Richard uh, Bachman, you know, and people were going to, somebody was going to out him as being, you know, really Stephen King. And he was just like, well, I'll just do this myself. And that's, you know, when he decides to go to the press at the suggestion of his wife and he'll, I'll like expose myself. No, No pun intended. But, uh, you know, it was like, how did he put it to, in, in the movie? It was something uh, along the lines of when he's talking to the reporter that's writing the, the the article. You know, he's like, I, I write George Stark because it's fun. No, that's his, uh, actually uh, his uh, agent. And he's like, I, I read George Stark because it's fun. I write, read that Beaumont because it's my job. Because his agents are just like not up with this. They don't think it's a good idea that he... <laughs> You know that he exposes himself because you know, like, hey, we got a thousand people that can write trash, but nobody can write trash like you know George Stark, which is his pseudonym. And let's face it; to be quite honest, in my opinion, <laughs> that is kind of a lame lame duck. You know, he's he's not not very uh, nimble. He's not he's kind of goofy. He's a little little bit clumsy and whatnot. He is the opposite of everything that George Stark is, because George Stark being his you Know, alter ego is cool, suave, sophisticated, and he's southern, you know. And he's uh, he's a bad motherfucker, or should say a high toned son of a bitch.
1: High toned son of a bitch, yeah, that's right, yeah, because he drives that
0: beautiful 66 Olds Tornado. God, I love that car. I would give my left testicle for one of those cars because it, you know, it, finally,
1: it is a star of this movie that that car. Oh yeah, I I literally wrote that in my notes. I'm like the
0: real star of this movie is is two things: Michael Rooker, and the '66 olds. You know, because that car is just beautiful, black on black, beautiful.
1: Now uh, Robert Joy, I mean, she's sad. Cause I like him, and I like him. at least one other thing is uh, he played Charlie that um, that was he had like he had like a burn on his face. Land of the Dead. Oh, he and played, uh, Land of Philly the Dead. In, yeah, number two in that movie. The sniper, you know, and I really like that character, just not this character. Yeah, that was a good role.
0: Yeah, yeah, because he usually does play kind of scumbaggy type characters. I actually just watched uh, with him where he plays one of the killers in uh, Death Wish 5, which is probably the most forgettable of the Death Wishes, but it's still Charles Bronson, so, you know, I'm going to watch it, but... (laughs) Yeah, he he was the he was the serial killer with uh, bad case of dandruff in that movie. So he's you know used to playing kind of those weird type characters. But yeah, I forgot. Yeah, his character uh, he he didn't show up in a George Romero movie yet again. But yeah, the next note I have is that Homer Gamash is a weird some bitch. He is just goofy. You know, he's talking about taking pictures of uh, teddy bears and coffins while he's taking pictures of. Thad at at this fake grave site where they're going to like fake bury George Stark. And I love that, like the fake gravestone and everything. And it comes back later on because you find out that, you know, at that fake plot is where the parents had taken the remains. They wanted them, the, the remains that were taken out of Thad's head as a boy and treated as real, you know, a real person, real human remains. And that's where they put them. So when they buried George Stark there, they were over the plot of, what was then, you know, what, you know, the doc kept saying was nothing to see, you know, but it was everything to see because it's, because, you know, the only reason why we have a film here. And I feel like if I was inclined to read anything, I would probably much rather read a book written by George Stark than Thad Beaumont myself.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, because for sure. Cause the, the way his publisher talks about him, you know, the way Thad Beaumont writes, it's one thing, but when he goes into that other mode, that the George Stark mode, it's it's something totally entirely totally different. Because, well, one thing sells because you know sleeves always sells, but that Bowman cannot sell, obviously. <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah, like he can write, but he just
0: can't sell. And you know, I, I love the first introduction to uh, uh, George, when you know Homer Gamashes is driving home in his pickup truck, and he sees him hitchhiking, just kind of thumbing a ride down the road. And he pulls, uh, you know, old Homer out the w- window of his truck and his fucking wooden leg, you know, is just hanging off the door.
1: Yeah, you got to talk not... about this because, you know, there's there's not many films in which somebody gets beaten to death with a prosthetic leg. And th- this is one of those movies. Right, right. And, you know, they
0: did kind of cheat it a bit. You don't get to see it, but you get to see the aftermath. Because when Michael Rooker is Alan Pangborn, you know, the the sheriff of Castle Rock shows up and he's like, you he took his leg and he's like, why did you have to steal his goddamn leg? Like, oh, no. And the deputy is like, it's, it's just over there. <laughs> and it's like, that's what he used to beat him to death with. And I, I just loved Michael Rooker. He's very low key in this. And really, the only thing I had seen him in, I think, at this point was cliffhanger and uh henry portrait of a serial killer so i'm not used to like seeing him low-key and still really like you know michael rooker's not known for being low-key but he is very low-key in this movie he plays it very cool calm collected but he's still a badass because i love the line he has when he's like you know why'd you have to you know why couldn't you just clip them one and let him go why'd you have to beat him to death i hope i get a chance to ask you and that was the one thing i kind of like if there's any disappointment with this movie. And it's really on a minor level. I would have loved to seen Michael Rooker get down and dirty and just like have it out with George Stark. But if that had happened, Stark probably would have taken him out.
1: He's very subdued for sure. And, you know, fighting carelessly as a peace officer for, for his friend, apparently it just, uh, cause the whole plot of this movie is the George Stark, uh, the, the double, the, the goo that is now a man, is murdering these people that that are involved with his exposure as as Ted Beaumont and this whole movie they keep finding evidence that that it's against Ted Beaumont and he's like well I, i'm I'm looking into it you just you just stay there man you know, <laughs> you know yeah
0: he's not a great cop he's a good friend but he's not a great cop because like he's ignoring all the evidence It's like yeah the evidence says you did he got it got fingerprints in the blood says you were there oh you were in new york just so happened that uh you know uh the uh uh the guy that was going to uh blackmail him fred clausen was going to be was in new york and just so happened that you know thad was doing the talk show circuit and like oh we found your uh fingerprints there and then this is the part where like people always say too much to the cops when there's shit like this going on you know it's just don't say anything without your lawyer present or don't say anything at all you know like because he's like how did he die and it's like maybe it was suicide like oh no he uh, you know his his tongue was cut out and then he had his uh, dick cut off and was shoved in his mouth because that's you know it was a gangland land style hit and that's when he's like oh was he shot in the head and I'm like no you don't do that to a rat someone who squeals you make him bleed and suffer and he's like and his first reaction is to go, yeah, that's that's what I said I'd do. <laughs> like, yeah, wait, yeah. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Like, why would you ever admit that? Like, if, if you didn't do it, just keep your mouth shut. It's like, he thinks the lady does protest too much, as uh, Shakespeare would say. Like, mm-hmm. he's like, yeah, that's what I said I would do if it were me. And he's like, oh, come on, Alan, would I say that to you if I if I really did it? And he just stares at him. And it's just that, that stare like, well, you know, I got to kind of entertain that idea when he shows up after the, the uh, Fred Clausen is found and he just shows up with a six pack. He doesn't show up with handcuffs. He even says, you know, I'm surprised you brought beer, not handcuffs, but he shows up with a six pack and just pulls one out. And he's like, Hey, how about we all just sit down and have a cold one? <laughs> like what cop does that? You know, it's, it's funny. It's funny now that you look back on it, but it's like, you know, you got to appreciate movie logic.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I guess you know, without him letting letting him go all these times, even with other officers in tow and officers watching the house and tapping their phone and yada yada yada, they're just uh, he's still fighting for his friend, <laughs> kind of, kind of stupidly, but you know, yeah. it is what
0: it is. Putting putting his, and he puts his life and his you know, reputation and job on the line, but uh, yeah. But I did uh, make a note uh, of the using the Black Beauty pencils. I have to note that when I first read the book, and especially when I first uh, watched the movie, I searched out and found Black Beauty pencils, those good old number two black pencils, to use when I started writing some of my manuscripts. Nice. So you might have, say I had a little bit of George Stark in me from the beginning because I love uh, when... Dad is talking to uh, Donaldson, the guy who's the uh, the ponytail wielding. Uh,
1: ponytail.
0: Yeah, ponytail guy who was also the dad in uh, um, Silver Bullet.
1: Yeah, he,
0: he was the dad whose boy got
1: torn apart. Uh, I'm gonna call him. I'm gonna call him not Terry O'Quinn because I thought that's who that was all day long. I thought who that was, but it, it wasn't him. <laughs> nope, not Terry O'Quinn, not the stepfather.
0: But I love when he tells him, he's like, George doesn't use a typewriter. He uses these, you know, and he tells him straight up and he's like, you know, this might be considered a you'll forgive me if I mention this, you know, might be uh, signs of schizophrenia. He's like, oh, I'd forgive you. I don't think George would, though. And that guy just kind of stops like, hmm. And then he ends up when he ends up dying. When that guy, I mean, because let's face it, when George Stark appears in the flesh, he's in a black suit. He's very slick. He's got, you know, sideburns. He's always listening. He always seems to be accompanied by uh, an Elvis song. Yeah, an Elvis song. But he's armed with a forty-five and a straight razor. And there's something so menacing about a straight razor. I don't know what it is. It's something that just makes the hair in the back of my neck stand up. It's not like being stabbed. There's something about being slashed with a straight razor just sends servers down my spine.
1: I mean, that, that scene, though, is so calculated, though, because you, you see him walk come out the elevator, and you look, you, they, the camera goes to the left or whatever. You see all the, the fluorescent lights detached inside of a mm-hmm. container. I mean, this is all premeditated, and it, it's probably my, my, my second favorite kill in the movie because the first one is, is one that comes later. But, um, cause he, he sees him, he cuts his face and you think that he's just there to scare him or something, but we we all know what happens next, but he thinks he's just like, Oh yeah, I guess he's done now. But yeah, he brutally murders him too. But
0: yeah. I (laughs) love when the guy pops out the, uh, out of the apartment door, he's like, what's going on out here? It's like murder. You want some? Oh yeah. George Stark has some of the best lines in this movie, you know, uh, and as like I said once again, as much as I'm not a fan of uh, Timothy Hutton, he delivers them perfectly. It's just how I would uh, assume assumed that uh, George Stark would say them when I read the book, you know. And he's just, you know, the the best line. I think it's the best line, and it's just very simple one. But it's the way he says it. It's like, just remember, Hoss, when you fuck with me, you're fucking with the best, you know it. He's just a slick motherfucker. He's a high-toned son of a bitch, and I, I, I love the George Stark character. You know, I'm the type of guy that goes into the movie and ends up rooting for the bad guy, so I'm not sure what that says about me and my psyche, but, you know, I'll let you, unless the rest of you uh, degenerates figure that one out on your own. The The birds, I love the fact that, you know, it's not a motif that's used very often. It wouldn't be really kind of mentioned or done again. Until uh, The Crow with uh, Brandon Lee, you know, of the, you know, birds or sparrows or birds in general being, you know, a, you know, carrying a spirit from the land of the dead to the land of the living or back and forth, you know. But uh, you were talking about your favorite uh, death scene in the movie. Which one is this that the ponytail guy was your second favorite? Which one is your first favorite?
1: It's the one with, with the publisher's wife. Because that's the first time he reveals himself, actually to Thad on the phone, and you know Thad's not home. He he gets the message, but the the way he tortures her is is something brutal, and I I have to appreciate that death more than any other one for that reason. Because he's you know he's he's having so much fun doing it, you know as 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 the killer, and he's just torturing this this poor woman to to the point of like. Yeah, just just to t- tell th- get to send that a message or whatever, and you know, he's not there, so it doesn't matter to him. So he cuts the phone line and just goes from there. He just keeps cutting this fucking woman, and right the, the, with that the, damn the, the straight look, razor. Ooh. The look, the look of anguish on her face is is what really sells it. I think, though.
0: Yeah, the actress that plays Miriam sells it big time because the way she's. Quiet, crying and quibbling, you know, and, and, and just shaking and everything. It, you buy it. Most of the time, it, you know, in movies where people are, quote-unquote, begging for their life, it always feels a bit put on. It does not feel put on in that scene at all. But yeah, yeah. Good, good, good scene. You know, and when they get her... Uh, her husband, or was her ex-husband? Yeah, that's right. Because they were getting, a, they were committed to making the business work, but they were as equally exactly committed to making their divorce work. So when they get, <laughs> you know, so now Donaldson's dead, Homer Gamash is dead, Miriam is dead, her husband Rick is dead. I and he gets his throat slit from fucking ear to ear, and I love how like, you know, he's in one of those skyscraper high-rise apartment buildings, and George Stark just kind of calmly steps out the window onto the uh, window washer, whatever they, they call the, the pulley system, the elevator or whatever that, you know, has the, the window washers going. he just kind of goes away. Like like he had it all planned. Like he, d- he did. He was very calculated, just like with the Donaldson character and having all the lights, you know, out. He, he you know, was very, uh, very calculated that way. And with the Donaldson, uh, to go back to the Donaldson, character when he kills him you know when the guy collapses at the end and he's like "Uh oh got a punt and he just drop kicks his head straight into the radiator (laughs) i'm just a sick son of a bitch i guess
1: that's okay you know it's all good you know i I can't i I, I wish i could pull off those shoes he wears in this movie I, i can't pull off those shoes you know oh no i would trip over my own feet I couldn't pull that look off. I, I've been
0: eating too much linguine, man. I, I couldn't pull that look off at all. But maybe one day. I figured once we get out of the uh, quarantine, I can shed off this like thirty pounds of quarantine weight that I fucking uh, uh, gained. You know, but you know, eh, never, Still, never be able to pull off those shoes. But then we get we still be get Michael uh, Michael Ruger, old Alan Pangborn, still not bringing him in, you know, uh, I, he had so many opportunities just to bring Thad in. I mean, and if he had, the, I mean, I, I guess he would have gotten proved wrong because it wouldn't have stopped George Stark. If, even if they had went that way with the story, you know, uh, uh, Michael Rooker putting Thad in jail, George would have still kept killing people because nothing was going to stop him. Because, you know, you end up finding out like you know, his... his um what he, You know, well, there's the Reggie character, which is a colleague at Thad's, kind of breaks it down, you know, that Thad had created Stark with his own mind and the Sparrows kind of conduct spirits from the land of the living to the land of the dead, you know, and what he's trying to do is take over Thad's life. He wants to, he's falling apart because he starts looking a little rough and it just kind of looks like, you know, a little cut on his cheek at one point, but then his teeth start falling out, like, as you know, noted earlier. He you know, starts pulling out teeth. His eyes start looking like a couple of fried eggs, you know, and he, he wraps his head in gauze to keep his head from falling apart. Because we do have that scene where Thad kind of puts himself in a dreamlike state to communicate with George. And when he's writing with the pencil and, and George writes out, or should say Thad writes out, he's like, I'm falling apart, Hoss. Huh? So and he's like, you know, no ne- no necessary cohesion or something like that. And he, you know, basically get the idea that he wants to write another book. It's the, the only way that he can be manifested in the flesh again and stop this kind of rotting process. Because, like he says, he's like, I'd hate for Thad to catch whatever it is I got here. Because even George doesn't quite know. But you know, I mean, because like George, I think knows that the only way to you know keep himself alive or at least uh, existing is to write another book. But I don't think, you know, as even uh, Thad says later on, he's like, I don't even know if this is, you know, if he even believes this is going to work. But, you know, that's what we'll get to in the very end of this movie, which is coming up here pretty soon. But, uh, you know, the only thing that I think was missing in this flick was the good old fashioned Savini effects. You know, I-, I actually had to look to see if the if Savini had done the effects on this because I was pretty sure that he had because the effects are pretty you know, pretty impressive. You know, they're fairly impressive with, with little blood that we get. Well, most of the blood is in the final act, but, uh, you know, it just surprised me that, you know, as often as Romero and Savini worked together, that they didn't work together on this one. Cause it was 91. I don't think Savini was that damn busy. So I don't know why that was.
1: I think about the only CG you got in the movie was probably some, some of the birds was probably CG, I'd imagine. And, mm-hmm. um, the part where Amy Madigan, the the wife, you know, the 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 the, um, the most complacent trophy wife you could ever have, we're staying together <laughs> for our twins. Although you could be a fucking bastard when you write your books, which they 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 explore that a little bit, which is um not not a major problem for me. It's just the the fact that this guy could go full Stark when he's in writing mode. And that she stayed with him to, to birth twins for fuck's sake is, is amazing to me because he just sounds like he could be a real piece of shit. But I'll the that. Well, yeah. Season, Cause
0: I'm oh, oh, sorry. I know the Cause she even says at one point, you know, you say some mean things and you can be quite a bastard when you're writing. And he's like, well, it's all me. It's all a part of me. And it's like, well, part of you is, is being a real asshole.
1: Well, that's, that, that goes back to, like, the addiction thing, too, because they said that he was a smoker and a drinker, too. And I'd imagine when, you know, he was in the, the, the starts, because they say that George Stark only lived for, for what they say, six years on the tombstone?
0: Yeah, because yeah, it was 1985 to 91, right, six years. So
1: he's three years sober at this point. I'd imagine when he first started to come up with the character, he was deep into his, his own addictions, and... She could be talking about that because obviously they settled down now. They had kids together, especially for the twins that show up in this movie. And um, but yeah, the trophy wife man. Even when he could possibly potentially be a murderer and talking all crazy and stuff, she she stays with him. And uh, the other CG part is the, the 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 fantasy scene where her face falls apart, if, if you will. And that's uh the porcelain face thing. Yeah,
0: yeah, during the nightmare sequence, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: which that nightmare sequence was pretty vivid. I love the imagery of it, you know, and the weird sounds like, you know, when the rose falls and hits the ground, it makes the sound of glass shattering and just a weird juxtaposition of shots. (laughs) And, you know, when she looks up and she's got that porcelain, the porcelain face collapsing in on itself. And then we we get the uh, the the equally weird shot of the the turkey that she was baked, you know, that harkens back to the scene earlier when you we re- really realize that she's not much of a housewife because she does she doesn't know how to make a turkey and she fucks it all up. But dad, dad being the the good guy, just kind of says, "Yeah, no, it's cool, we'll eat it." But yeah, that's part of the 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 breathing kind of weird turkey that melts in the oven. But yeah, that that that's a, a good little nightmare sequence. But that's when we get to our finale here. We get to, uh, you know, Georgia taking uh, the family hostage. He's t- taken uh, dad's wife, the the twins, and taking them. And, and, and here's the part that I didn't quite understand. He was talking, you know, dad was always saying, you know, we're well off, but we're not that rich. They had a summer home, you know, or a summer cottage, you know, lakeside cottage that is five times bigger than any home that I've ever lived in. So they had to have some money. And I almost forgot, we do get a cameo uh, earlier on in the film when they had gotten to the house and they were doing the the article, the interview, and the pictures uh, by Christine Romero, Christine Force, who was uh, George Romero's wife at one time. And uh, she plays the, her usual character, kind of like she plays, the same kind of character she plays in Mon- Monkey Sh- Monkey Shines. This a kind of a really, really uh bitchy kind of uh, nurse or you know nanny that comes along and like she has her one little scene and like oh well they're not gonna mess up the house they're gonna scuff up the floors they're not gonna take any pictures of the babies it's like don't worry they're not going to but playing the same kind of role she played in many of George's movies but uh yeah they had a little Christine Romero uh, cameo there. But anyway, we're backtracking but we're getting back to the to the ending. I love when they finally get together when Thad and George finally like start the butt heads at the end. And they're just kind of, you know, they each know a little bit of what the other one's thinking, but you know, especially George, he's more in tune to what Thad is thinking. You know, he he wants Thad to help him, you know, to help him write the book. So when he gets there, you know, he there's a real Sophie's choice moment when he's like, you know, give me the babies, you know, because George is just standing there holding one kid in each arm with a forty-five still in his hand while he's holding the baby, which is just, you know, this kind of makes you all kind of squeamish and stuff. Guns and babies, you know, not making a, a great mix there. You know, he's just like, you know, give me the kids and, you know, let me, you know, so like make sure neither one of them get hurt. And he's like, well, I'll let you have one.
1: And there's a real kind of like, you know, it's a real Sophie's Choice moment. It's like, which one do you pick? Ah, uh, this is your house, okay? This is their lake house. Why would you choose to bring the baby upstairs when you could have easily left your uh, one baby out of harm's way and put it later down in a bed, laid him down in a bed somewhere or something, you know?
0: Yeah, why bring them both up there?
1: <laughs> it's it's a real <laughs> yes, it's a was... real it's a real small thing, but if this is supposed to be your house, and you have children that you take to this house. You have some place to put said children, and not upstairs with your psychotic double that could possibly shoot it in the head. And right. There you go. Right. There you got, you got yeah. no babies. See, you
0: know. <laughs> yeah, then you got no babies. Yeah, like, well, I mean, that is not exactly the smartest cat. He's he's not slick. He's not uh, Alexis Machine or George Stark at all. He's a he's everything that the, that character is not. But George is, uh, you know, the, for the first time up when they get up there and he's just they're both sitting there with their pencils in their hand, getting ready to write. And for the first time, George is just like, you know, when dad tells him, you know, there's nothing to it but to do it. So just do it. And he's like, I'm scared, Hoss, because I think for the first moment he was scared of, uh, you know, George being the high toned son of a bitch that he is. And he's a great villain, but it shows that he was still somewhat human or at least had human tendencies even though he was a an evil twin double, you know born from goo b- brought back from the grave he still had that very human emotion of being scared because what if this doesn't work and you know I, I just i just love that part of the character but and this is the, the part where i made a note it was one of my final notes on the pages of notes that i had uh George Stark and Thad Beaumont both I mean both being Timothy Hutton have some of the shittiest penmanship I've ever seen anybody have. How could yeah. you read anything they were writing i I couldn't read any of it
1: I mean mine's not great, but when, when, I, when I write and I can't read what i what i i I wrote down I know I have a problem, but yeah their their penmanship is off. I understand he's under distress or or whatnot but and every every time you see Thad, right, he's under distress, as far as like in the physical sense in the movie. So maybe that's got something to do with it. Um, one thing I love about this scene is even though, um, George Stark is literally falling apart, he's showing some vulnerability. When um, yes, when Thad decides to to attack him, he's still very much in control of the situation. He beats the shit out of Thad. <laughs> you know? Oh, he gets like, the literal fuck out of him. He's like yeah, he has no no chance in the world of beating this 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 uh this this better better but but flawed version of himself because he's just like yeah I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna try something here and all of a sudden he just chucks him to the ground and kicks him in the balls with the steel toe and he's he's <laughs> he's down baby thank God for those yeah. finches thank God for those finches though huh brother you know
0: right right if it wasn't for those fucking finches that would be fucking uh... <laughs> he'd be hamburger. He'd be, he'd be fucking that dead.
1: He'd be dead just like everybody else, you know.
0: Right, right. I love the scene though when they're writing and you start to see the 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 color come back into George's eyes and the discoloration and the rot that's showing on his face and his teeth is starting to fade away, which I believe was done with practical effects. I don't believe that that was any kind of CGI whatsoever. But you see that, and at the same time, it's transferring that rot. And that stage, those stages of decay to Thad, when his his head starts to split open and starts to bleed, and his face starts to discolor, and that does start to realize he's like, oh shit, if he finishes writing this book, I'm I'm going to be the puddle, I'm going to be the puddle of goo. <laughs> you know, which like I, to, to be quite honest, I would have much rather seen that ending. It would have been much cooler of an ending to have Stark win, and uh, you know start take over and just kind of be one of those moments like, you know, kind of like a, a, a slightly darker version of free Jack, you know?
1: <laughs> oh, but, free you know, Jack but, is very dark, man. Come on now. You know? Yeah.
0: Eh, maybe, maybe, maybe um, a little I'm, dark.
1: I'm making a joke here. It's not really dark at all. It's, it's kind of silly, <laughs> but you know, that's, that's the kind of, that's the kind know, of, of silly. It's the kind of silly that I enjoy. Oh, I do. I love it. I love it. But yeah, that's, whew. Yeah,
0: that's not dark. <laughs> that's anything but dark. That's just, you know, Emilio Westervelt trying to live off his uh, Young Guns days. I think that was what that was. But, you know, because on a side note, in Free, Free Free Jack, we do get Mick Jagger though, And his one sci-fi uh, villainish role, which I don't know. I don't know. Yeah,
1: uh, could... Anthony Hopkins collected a paycheck. You know. <laughs> right. Right.
0: That was the one of those I will, you know, I'm I'm pulling a Michael Caine at this point. He's like, I'm doing this for, for a house payment. But uh, you know, hey, we've all we've all done jobs like that, and some of us more often than others. But yeah, like you said, thank God for the finches because when all the finches show up, I, I mean, thousands of them, and you know, they said they used uh, in the trivia that I found said they used 4,500. So I imagine a good, you know. of what we saw were, you know, digital CGI, you know, sparrows or finches or whatever, but you know, it still looked good. It still looks damn good. And even on my old standard definition DVD, you know, it still looks pretty damn good because that was the only way I was able to watch it. I don't have it on Blu-ray and it's not really streaming anywhere. So I just broke out my old DVD because physical media libraries where it's at because when Netflix goes down, my library's still right here to my left.
1: Yes, it is.
0: But the the sparrows, you know, uh, end up taking, uh, picking apart uh, old George bit by bit when they burst in through the wall. Because, I mean, they're starting to come in through the wall. They're pecking their way through the wall and uh, through the bookcase and everything. I mean, and then George is like knowing that the gig is up, or that the that the jig is up. He's gonna uh, he's gonna shoot the fucking twins, and he actually tries to. But, you know, they, they kind of use a page out of, uh, no pun intended, once again, a page out of the Misery book, and he uses the typewriter to bludgeon, you know, George Stark and knock the gun out of his hand, you know, much like the same way that, you know, uh, happened in Misery. But if it wasn't for a well-placed typewriter and about 5,000 finches, you know, uh, that Beaumont would be no more. You know, then Alan Pangborn shows up, you know, Michael Rooker shows up in just enough time to basically untie the wife downstairs for them to open up the door and to see George being picked apart. You know, he's pretty much just a skeleton with a few strips of skin left on him as he's being just picked apart. What do you you think he was thinking at that point?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. let's talk about Thad's endgame in that sense, because, you know, when he bursts to the door, he sees these birds pecking away at what's left of George Stark, which is basically bones and, you know, and they fly away with whatever's left. If this was any other cop, what what do you think that George Stark's end game would be? Well, you know what? He was around. He, he threatened my wife, and my kids, you know, but the birds just took him away. You know, they would lock his right. ass up. Right. You know, cause I was just thinking to myself, okay, in the end of the story,
0: I forget exactly. Cause it's been again, 15-20 years since I've read the book I don't remember what the the end Really was for Thad uh, You know Thad Beaumont But what was he going to explain to, to the rest of the cops To the state cops To the FBI To everybody else Yeah he might be able to explain it To Pangborn And have Pangborn believe You know believe what he just saw and just witnessed himself (laughs) you know i mean what was he going to explain to all these other cops and how his fingerprints were found everywhere and you know and let's not forget that he goes back to visit the the banger main doctor that did the original work on him and uh george stark kills him and there's ghost thad going out the front door "Uh, call an ambulance just call an ambulance That something bad happened and he just runs away and, like, he's there at the scene of the crime. They got fingerprints at at least two different locations.
1: You know. He, he, he touched He touched the corpse,
0: okay? Yeah. He touched the corpse. He touched the blood. He touched the curtains. He touched the sink. He touched everything. That was a note I had even made. It's just like, why do people in, in movies just generally touch so much shit when they're in a crime scene? Like, did they not? Like, yeah. no, is, and none
1: of these people? I got, like, a... Uh seven murders that I'm being accused of. Let's just go make a CGI nightmare for myself and just to <laughs> yeah, no shit. get accused of one more murder. <laughs> right, right, right. But yeah, i like, they're always so touchy
0: touchy. They always want to touch the corpse or much less touch the murder weapon. Oh, uh, that always gets me when, you know, that you see a body and there's a knife laying there and they pick up the knife to look at. It. They're like, yeah, that's a knife. It's a bloody knife left on a corpse. It probably was used. Don't fucking touch it. You know,
1: had these people never watched Dexter or CSI or anything? See that—that's where the Boondock Saints had it right. See, they sprayed that shit down with bleach, and yeah, we remember Willem Dafoe's reaction to that shit. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh,
0: I love that movie. Oh, we we need to do a show on that sometime. <laughs> oh. But yeah, I mean, that's essentially the end of our movie. You know, old George Stark gets carried away. You know, bit by bit into the night sky, and that's the, you know the end. You know, uh, I, don't, I remember, you know, a few of the the, uh, the reviews and whatnot felt like the ending was anticlimactic, but I thought the ending was actually very good. You know, I mean, it it gives you exactly what it promises, you know, the the, the sparrows are supposed to take one of them away. And, you know, there's the whole debate, you know, for, through half the movie, you know, which one is it going to take, you know, and especially like in, in a Stephen King movie, you never know if it's going to be the good guy or the bad guy, you know, but. And this one, you know, George Stark is carried away and presumably Thad Beaumont is left on Earth uh, to go to jail and rotten jail for the rest of his life because, like, he's a murder suspect that all the evidence points to him. He's placed at the murder scene. He's got, you know, all this evidence against him and he's going to jail. Yeah,
1: so, he, you know, he, good old, thing he's got good thing. He's got Alan Wiggum on his side. That's a, uh, it's a Simpsons reference, you know, like <laughs> uh, Mr. Wiggum, Chief, Chief, Chief. Wiggum. Nothing to see here, you know. Uh, yeah, because, like, how is he
0: going to explain that to anybody? It's kind of like Chris Arendon's character at the, you know, uh, Mike Norris' character at the end of uh, Child's Play. Like, he's see, like, see,
1: nobody's well, going gonna... to. At least he had his partner to corroborate that a doll was alive and trying to murder them. Because he, he popped his right. guy out of the vent to try to kill him. So at least he had his partner to say, yeah, that 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 kind of happened, you know.
0: It's a... yeah, it's true. Alan's got nobody, and nobody's gonna believe Mrs. Beaumont because they'll just figure she was like an accomplice. But yeah, there, you know, the the ending after the ending, the ending that we don't see is, you know, pretty much Thad's gonna go to jail the rest of his life because he, you know, not only murdered, you know, a half dozen people, but he murdered cops and kidnapped children and murdered doctors and everything else. So yeah, that's the the unhappy unhappy dual ending that we never got to see, but that's. I always think of that, you know, when I'm watching a movie. I'm like, okay, you know, they always gotta tie everything up in a little nice little neat little bow and a nice little package at the end. But yeah, he he's gonna to go to jail. That that's it for him. But yeah, that you know, my last note is how in the hell do you explain that one to the authorities? You don't. You because can't. yeah, there's no evidence. There's a bunch of blood all over the place, which I imagine if they, they tested it, it would just be that's so that's what you get so i i know what your favorite death scene is in the movie since we've already went over that do you have a favorite george stark one-liner
1: oh the, the um damn there's there's so many good ones and i, I had to really look this up because i watched it a couple of days ago it's just hard to remember them word for word but um I,
0: I still say mine is remember when you fuck with me you're fucking with the best that's yeah got
1: it's pretty. It's a pretty good one, man. You know, every. You know, the way he says the words "house." I love the way he says the word "house" all the time. It's good stuff. Yeah, but, um, house. Yeah, <laughs> it's not like uh, somebody the, the, trying to say horse. <laughs> the, the 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 way he describes uh the character is that he he is some kind of cracker. I think he says like, well, you know, True. they don't all talk like that, but okay, it's fine. Yeah. Sure.
0: Yeah. Well, he even says at one point, I give you my word, the word of a Southern man, which is not taken lightly. And it's just like, yeah, being a Southern man or what, I'm like, I don't take anybody's word, <laughs> especially not when they're holding uh, a straight razor and a pistol to my kid's head. You know, I don't think I could do that.
1: But, oh, one thing I forgot to mention that um, in the cast that Beth Grant is a character actress that shows up as dad's mom in the movie and. If you don't know the by name, you've seen her in many, many things. Uh, she's really doubting your your commitment to Sparkle Motion. Is all I'll say about that. If you know what that what that's from, the the you giant know. giant rabbit apocalypse movie. God, I don't wanna say it's it's wait, Donnie Dark it's it's Donnie Darko, okay? It's a film I don't enjoy, but I enjoy that character actress, you know. But uh so, You know,
0: I had only I now I do remember her. I remember her she's a character actress. She's been in something else that I remember seeing. Oh, she was in a, No Country for Old Men. That's what I remember. She was I, uh, the girl back, the one girl's mother in that.
1: Back to child's play again. She plays the teacher in child's play too that gets uh gets it with the yardstick from Chucky. You know,
0: oh, that's right. She is, yeah, she is in that, isn't she?
1: She's in a lot of things, but that's the Other reason why I mentioned her because she's in tons of stuff. Yeah,
0: I, can, I can't really remember that. I, oh God, I just uh was trying to think of. Now, was that Child's Play one or Child's Play two?
1: That was Child's Play two, I believe. Yeah, yes, part right, two, right? Yeah.
0: But then we uh, the, the the guy that plays Donaldson, uh, Kent Broadhurst, he, he is almost a sp- the spitting image of Terry O'Quinn, so I, I could kind of see I, what
1: uh, I had to look. I was like, "Is that Terry O'Quinn?" You know, because uh, it's um, he looks a lot like um, my, my my co-host Suzanne's husband, and I want to say, "Hey, what, what, when did Terry O'Quinn look like your husband?" But it's not Terry O'Quinn, so it's not at all. <laughs> <laughs> there you I, go. Both actors worked a ton. I looked up uh, his IMDb credits, so there's that. Yeah,
0: I was going to say, he's been in like 30, 40 things. Wasn't he even in, uh, God, he was even in the uh, Leon the Professional, I see. I, I might have to go back and rewatch that. I didn't remember him being in that. But, Yeah this movie is filled with all great character actors. And that was the one thing George uh, Romero was really good at was the casting. He casted perfectly. I do kind of question the Liz Beaumont, the uh, Amy Madigan blade. I kind of just felt like her and Timothy Hutton weren't exactly a good match, but it worked like, you know, like I didn't buy their relationship <laughs> at all, but like, it's because she's awfully understanding at one point, you know, he calls her up and he's like, don't tell me where you're going. I can't know where you're going. You know, something bad's going to happen. I'd be like, wait a minute, motherfucker. You mean you're going to do something bad to me? Yeah.
1: That, yeah. It sounds like you're going to fucking murder somebody when you make a phone call like that, you know? Right. Like, remember, I love you more than anything in life in the world. And
0: then hangs up on her like, oh, shit. Like, now I'm going to have to look over my shoulder.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, one thing I forgot to bring up again, I keep forgetting to bring things up, you know, the whole, the whole idea that these parts of him become a person, it, it really is like an evolution tale if you think about it, because, you know, the 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 first single-cell organisms evolved into this and evolved into that, well, you know, this pile of goo evolved into a psychopath, and I, I could appreciate, I'm not sure if that's what Stephen King was going for, but I could appreciate... uh Yeah. The rapid growth rate of one, um, George Stark in this movie.
0: (laughs) Yeah. He, he, he does have a rapid growth rate. He, he goes from being, like I said, you know, like a, an eyeball, a few fingernails and a tooth and a a part of a nose and whatnot to being a full grown bouncing baby boy in uh, in no time flat. Uh, and I love how like old Michael Rooker, as you said, uh, uh, you know uh mr wiggins or uh, police chief wiggins you know he, he even just 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 uh dismisses uh or royal dano when he's saying this doesn't it look like somebody climbed up out of here and dug his way out which it did look like somebody dug their way out it didn't look like somebody dug a hole and he's like no listen whoever dug the hole jump back in to do the digging and put their hands here to boost themselves out and he's like nah, i don't know about that but if you know, once again, if he just listened to what was going on, maybe could have prevented a few more murders. But you know, if he had done that, we wouldn't have ourselves much of a movie.
1: He was he he was helping out a friend there, man. As I'll say, yeah, in, in doing his job very poorly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One of
0: the worst cops ever. I did make a one little weird note here that uh, in the within the same year. In 93, we got Needful Things. And in Needful Things, which also takes place in Castle Rock, Mm -hmm. uh, Ed Harris plays Alan Pangborn, Sheriff Alan Pangborn, who he in real life is married to Amy Madigan, who was in this movie. So there's kind of a little, little like, uh, you know, link there in, in Stephen King Worlds. Like, no, not re- have you
1: have you seen the TV cut of Needful Things? I used to have this on like a very bootleg file, but I don't have it anymore. There's a- yeah, I
0: I saw it once back in the day and recorded it off TV. I duped it with the uh, with my old VCR when it came on TV. Yeah.
1: Well, if you got a copy, I got to send it my way. This is unrelated to the to the show run right now, but if you guys are ever on TNT, TNT way back in the day, we used to show Needful Things. That was almost the only place you could see it was on TNT.
0: Yeah, and it's almost like, what, 20, 25 minutes longer?
1: I think like 40 minutes longer. It's it's, it's much longer.
0: Yeah, because there's a whole bunch of extra stuff, and there's whole extra characters in that movie. I don't remember a lot of it. I had it, like I said, I had it on VHS back in the day. It's probably somewhere in my closet in one of my many, many uh, storage rooms. Uh, containers of VHS But if I can find it I will send it to you Amazing Yeah that was great yeah. Alright well why don't we go ahead and give our final th- Thoughts and reviews on this Bad boy And, and as you know here being a while well, you've already been a one time guest a Guest goes first so go ahead Give us your final thoughts on Dark Half And a rating on a scale of 1 to 10
1: uh, You know Great great, action this movie I love the whole idea of the The evil twin, you know, and literally growing from nothing in this movie and just killing people brutally and being so cool and coy about it. So George Stark is is what you come for. You you stay for the finches. Um, We said a lot already. It's it's a solid eight out of ten. There's not a whole lot wrong with this movie, except for Amy Madigan and the sheriff. But that's just character flaws, man. Come on now. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'd have to, I'd have to agree with you. You know, the, the character flaws are the sheriff and the wife character, you know, Amy Madigan, but without those flaws, we would have ourselves a very short movie, you know? So without that, but it's, it's a perfect 10 out of 10 for me. This is my, this is the penultimate ultimate, ultimate, uh, George Romero film, you know, at, I know a lot of people will probably think that's sacrilege to not pick uh Night the living dead or creep show or whatnot. Those are uh, some of those movies are still perfect tens to me, but this is everything I want in a movie. This is George Romero at his best. Uh, it's got inventive special effects. It's got, you know, like you said, you come for George Stark, but you stay for the, the, the sparrows and the finches, you know, uh, George Stark is just a crazy good bad guy. He's a great villain. He's cool. He's calm. He's suave sophisticated as a Southern gentleman, you know, and I just, I love the kind of Jekyll and Hyde version of, you know, uh, Timothy Hutton in this, you know, and and he's really one of the shining points of this movie because for an actor that I don't love very much or don't uh, care for that much, he created one of my favorite characters and I love George Stark. You know, but it's the perfect marriage of Romero and Stephen King. When you got those two together, not much can go wrong. Uh, you know, it, uh, it's obvious here that we love uh, George Romero. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing a whole month to, dedicated to him. But, yeah, this is uh, my favorite George Romero film. And you can take that one to the bank. Ten out and of ten.
1: He creates these characters, that these bad guys that you, that you really want to love. And he's only done this a couple of times. This and and Randall Flagg, C- Captain Trips, which is the denim version of uh, of, of George Stark, you kind of yeah. have to love them because of their swagger, you know, even though they're they're awful people, you know.
0: Yeah, but they're done well, you know. And uh, I'm I'm the type of guy that you know is like uh, Ray Liotta said in Goodfellas, you know, he, Jimmy was the kind of guy who rooted for the bad guys in the movies. That's me. I root for the bad guys because they're so much more interesting, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, think about it. This movie is a perfect uh, example of that. Who's the more interesting character, George Stark or Thad Beaumont? It's George Stark. You don't come to this movie wanting to see Thad Beaumont. You come to this movie wanting to see George Stark. Yep. But that being said, I think we'll call this, uh and, and then to the evening, Uh this has been one of my favorite shows, uh, and I know people say that all the time. Oh, this has been one of my favorite interviews or been one of my favorite shows, but this is my favorite uh, Romero film, so getting the, to cover this was uh, one of the reasons why I started doing shows again. And so I was glad that you were able to, to come along on the trip with me, uh, Gary, and maybe you can uh, let people know where to find you and what you got going on this new.
1: Ah, uh, Cinev Podcast, Two Drink Commentaries, Burning for Springwood. It uh, can all be found at legionpodcast.com. Um, I mentioned a project that me and Lee may be doing. Uh, we, 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 me and uh, camera will be doing with, with Lee Russell. Hasn't happened yet. Lee's, Lee's schedule has been crazy, so I haven't been bothering him too much as far as, like, he got a lot of, a lot of stuff going on at work. So short-staffed, you know, the, the virus will do this to certain jobs. And I'm blessed to still have my job and still be there. I guess. It's a seven day a week job, so it takes a lot out of you. Yeah, the LegionPodcast.com, uh, that, that show with a whole bunch of other shows that you guys might like to listen to. And uh, NFW commentaries on the, hor- the um, I almost said Horophilia. Horophilia. It's uh, the Dark Discussions Network. Uh, check them out. Well, right on. Once again, folks, you have been
0: listening to Cinema G Generation. This has been the George. A Romero Appreciation Month.